Let's now turn to our scripture reading for this morning. Pastor Bill will be preaching for us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Good morning. As Luke said, my name is Bill Smith. If we've not met yet, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And I want to share very briefly before we jump into this morning's teaching and speak to those of you who will be joining us for prayer and prep day. Prayer and prep day is our day where we get the leaders and uh, servants in our ministry teams together and we talk a little bit about the upcoming year. We're going to start that morning with a brief time of praise and then I will share with us about what I see as one of the biggest challenges for us in this upcoming next ministry year. And I want to help us think about how do we go about tackling it so that we don't see it as something negative, but that we see it as an opportunity. Uh, similar to what I did last year, I, I find these times very important for us uh, as we think about where we're going in the future for our church. So let me urge you, if you're in that meeting, get up early. Make sure that your mind is working and that you're awake. Have a little bit of breakfast. Make sure you have your coffee. Bring your coffee. Bring a notebook. Bring a pen. Because you know that I talk way too fast. If you're new with us, you've already noticed that. Bring your notebook and pen because I'm going to go through a number of different passages. I want to give us a big picture and then a number of things that I think will be helpful for us in this coming year. If you're not on one of the ministry teams but you'd still like to have this portion of that morning, we will record it. Um, we can get you the link. Uh, just contact us. Go to the webpage, www.renewalmainline.org. Hit the contact link. We'll be glad to share that with you. And no, you do not need to be a member of Renewal to get that. We've been studying the book of Mark during our Sunday morning teaching series. And we've come to a place in Mark where we're watching the kingdom of God start to grow. Little tiny beginnings and now starting to grow. A few chapters earlier in the book, Jesus gave us four parables about this kingdom, about how it starts as this tiny little insignificant seed, something that nobody even hardly notices. It gets planted, starts growing, grows whether people notice it or not, but then after a while, it just grows incredibly. It becomes this huge plant that then provides for others and, and benefits them as well, grows explosively. That's what Jesus taught about the kingdom. And then last week, as Pastor David was sharing, you got to see that kingdom start to grow. You have Jesus, the one who's bringing the kingdom to, of God to earth, the seed of the kingdom, and he's being rejected because of his appearance. And what are you learning there? He, you're learning he's too small. 
He's not impressive enough. He did not look like the Messiah that people envisioned. Just a carpenter from a family they already knew. They had no big expectations of him. Didn't look like much. And so they dismissed him. And then the very next thing that you learn is that he sent out 12 apostles and he told them, don't take anything extra with you. And so they're not going out looking very impressive either. And yet they go out and they do exactly what? They do exactly what Jesus has been doing. They preach that people should repent. They cast out demons. They heal people. And in that moment, what you just saw is the kingdom starting to sprout. It's going from the seed to the next stage. And it's a kingdom that starts to grow to call others into it. And it's been doing that now for over 2,000 years. You and I are part of that same kingdom community of unassuming people, people who don't look like all that much, living under the lordship of the unassuming king. Now, as you just heard Pastor Luke read, our scripture this morning is from the letter to the Ephesians, not from the book of Mark. And that's because we're going to take a little break here in the book for two weeks so that we can think a little bit more carefully about this community that Jesus started. And we're going to look at this community from two standpoints. This week, we're going to look at its nature, what it actually is. Next week, we'll look at its function. What does it do? So this week, what is it? Next week, what does it do? And I would suggest that this is timely for us at Renewal. We're still in the process of regathering. We went for over a year without meeting in person to worship. We're heading now into the fall. We're coming out of vacation, regathering the community in a different kind of way. Going to restart our CGs. Our college students are in the process of coming back. This is a good time for us to remind ourselves why it's important for us to actually be together, to not fall into some of the bad habits that the pandemic taught us. You know what those habits are. You roll out of bed and you sit yourself up in front of a screen. We want to learn how to instead anticipate getting together again with the people of God in the morning, even the night before, getting up early, getting ready, coming out, and joining with the rest of the community. We know that some people can't for health reasons, but for the rest of us who can, we want to remind ourselves over these next two weeks why it feels so different for us to actually be together, to be in each other's presence. Now, everybody that I've talked to said, you know, there's, there's a significant difference when I worship in person. It just feels different than in front of a screen. And I would suggest there's a variety of reasons for that, but one of those is that we have been brought into a connection with each other because of Christ. That in a very real, very important way, we belong with each other, gathered together, either on Sunday morning or in CGs or youth group or in RCF. We belong with each other because we belong to each other. And so when you're away from the rest of the community, you feel it. You feel disconnected, but it's not just you who feels it. We feel it. We feel the disconnect from you as well. It's one reason why we're taking time to focus on this new community, because it's important for us in the history of renewal. It's also timely for us given the social climate in the U.S. Scientists have now finished mapping the human genome, and they tell us that human beings share 99.9% of our DNA with each other. Let that number settle in a little bit, 99.9%. That means that all of our physical genetic differences come from 0.1% of our DNA. Now, that does not prove what the Bible says, but it does support what the Bible has always said. That we are one human race, descended from one human pair. One race that then gets expressed in a multiple number of different ethnic groups. Or even more so, expressed in an incredible, infinite variety of individuals. A boundless diversity, clustered in groups that has at its source one underlying unity. But if you live in the U.S., you know that it's very hard to hold diversity and unity together without prejudicing one over the other. 
And so you may have had someone say to you that they're colorblind. Someone who says that when it comes to matters of ethnicity, I don't see differences that matter. I see people as people. I treat everyone equally. Now, if you try to give someone like that the benefit of the doubt, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say, I don't see people as inferior to me, which, okay, I appreciate. But if you dig down a little bit, you realize there's a price for the way that they see equality. And that price is not paid by the person who says, I, I, I'm colorblind. That price is paid by everyone else. Because what they're really saying is, I'm blind to what? I'm blind to your culture. I ignore that you might be different from me. I ignore that you might have cultural values that are different from mine that you think are actually worth hanging on to. I ignore that you've had differences that are linked to your ethnicity in the society that have shaped your approach and your way of thinking about life. Differences that I've not had or cannot have because of my own social location. I ignore all that, and I assume that you and I are the same, that your culture is no different from my culture, and that I can see you through the lens of what? Of my culture without any real loss or damage to you. Now on the surface, what is that? It's a prioritizing of our humanity over our diversity. It doesn't celebrate differences. It invites us to submerge all our differences, to flatten them in one cultural location. It devalues difference by elevating, I would suggest, one culture as superior to being the only one that matters. Now, do people understand that when they say that? Probably not. But it still ends up eliminating the diversity that God has built into his people. On the other extreme, however, is an overvaluing of difference. You're all familiar with how racism does this. How it draws lines between people based on their differences and then hates anybody who is not on their side of the line. Hatred t that takes a variety of forms, that belittles, mocks, ridicules, judges, threatens, persecutes going all the way up to even killing others. Those who are on the other side of the line. It's a position that elevates difference over unity and ends up separating and dividing people. That's the hard version of valuing difference, the one that everybody sees. There is a soft version out there as well. The version that says, unless someone has had my experience, they cannot understand me or where I'm coming from. And therefore, what I really need is to gather myself with people who have had my experience, people who are like me, who are able to get me, people who will care for me, serve me, represent me, look out for my interests. Now, if you listen there, what you're hearing is a denial of our basic underlying humanity. A denial that says it's possible to relate to each other, not perfectly. Nobody can ever do that with any other human. But that there is something at the core of our human humanity that every other human being can relate to. That even though our experiences on this planet are all radically different from each other, that there is a connection between us, one that transcends our differences because it goes to this other level. That's why chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus and says that he is someone who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Because in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse that I'm sure most all of us are familiar with, but think about it. Think about all the different dimensions the different overlapping circles that make up Jesus' identity. Circles that you and I do not share. We don't fully share them. I'm just going to give a couple. Who is Jesus? He's a firstborn male Israelite. Most likely er lost his early father at an early age. He's a blue-collar worker who lived in an agrarian society 2,000 years ago in a society that we have absolutely no idea what it was like to live in. All those different intersections 
and yet he can sympathize with you in your weaknesses. His differences don't alienate him, don't keep him from connecting with you. He can sympathize with you, and you know what? You know he can. And you rely on that. You value that sympathy from him when you're struggling. Because as the rest of the passage puts it, you know that his sympathy means you can go to him confidently and you can get the grace and the mercy that you need in those moments when you struggle. Now, why can you have that confidence despite all of his differences? It's because you know that he gets you. He gets the full human experience. He gets how hard it is to live on this earth. He gets what it's like for you. And the reason that he gets it is because he's been tempted in every way that you are. That doesn't mean that he has had your exact experiences. But he has had experiences that produced inside of him the same temptations that your experiences produce inside of you. And so you connect at that deeper level inside. There is a fundamental unity that your soul and Jesus' human soul share with each other. A unity that you also share with every other human being. A unity that the modern world denies when it says that what makes us different is more ultimate than what we share in common. That our differences act to keep us from being able to connect. They separate us rather than provide an opportunity for us to come together. I hope that you can see how deeply entrenched in the human heart this is, this desire, this longing to draw lines between ourselves and others. It takes different forms in different societies. Some forms have the harder, more aggressive form of racism. Others have the softer form. Other societies, like our own, will disavow something that we once tolerated, racism in the U.S., Not that we've eliminated, but we don't tolerate it in the same kind of ways. But that doesn't mean that we've learned to stop dividing from each other. We've just shifted the way that that form now takes. And teaching people is not going to get rid of that antagonism. Helping people understand that there is a minuscule difference in our DNA, appealing to our common humanity, will not eliminate line drawing because it's a solution that doesn't go far enough. Just like all the rest of the world's solutions to hating others have not gone deeply enough either, because these problems are not first and foremost mental problems. They're sourced inside of us. And because they have a deeper source within our humanity that goes all the way back to the fall into sin, we need something, someone, from the outside to enter into this world and rescue humanity from ourselves. That's what Jesus has done. That's what the gospel is. The good news of what Jesus has done for us is that Jesus not only restores us to God. We have to think bigger here, though. The gospel is not just about getting you into heaven. It's about restoration. It restores you to God, and at the same time, it restores us to each other back in our humanity so that we now are changed inside, so that our fundamental longing is to love rather than divide. That should tell us something, by the way, about the impossibility of doing that restoration work by ourselves. Whenever it takes the death of the Son of God to do something, we don't have that ability in ourselves apart from him. That's the argument of Ephesians chapter 2. We did not read the first 10 verses this morning, but they talk about what God has done for you personally. That he has made you individually spiritually alive when you were spiritually dead. That's great news. Most of us are familiar with the gospel. But the chapter doesn't end there. It goes on, the last half, to say that your personal reconciliation with God means that you are simultaneously reconciled with the rest of his people. That yes, God has saved you as an individual but he saved you into a community. And that in connecting you with himself, he has connected you with every other person with whom he's connected. 
And the reason, again, that this works is because it's more than just a mental construction. It's a fundamental reworking of who you are inside. It's a restoration of your humanity so that you now experience difference without experience difference as barrier, as things that keep you from relating to others. It's a restoration of your humanity. It's something new in the history of the world. That's why it's a new humanity. It's part of the new creation. It's the new humanity, the new human race, that with all of its diversity will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's a very long introduction this morning. So let's quickly move on to the three points that I think are important for us to look at. Three points here that you probably will not remember if you're not taking notes. I can't remember them without my notes. You probably can't remember them without your notes. If you don't have something to take notes on, there's always the podcast you can listen to. Three things this morning out of Ephesians. First, we're going to look at what we were before we joined this new humanity. Secondly, we're going to look at what Jesus has done so that we can join the new humanity. And then thirdly, what is this new humanity? What have we now become? So what we were, what Christ has done, what we now are. Verse 12, what we were. You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I want you to think about those five words, separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope without God in the world. All things that are true, all things that if you are in Christ, connected to Christ, you have experienced, but things that are hard to believe on the other side, right? They're hard to feel. We're so used to being disconnected from God in this world that that disconnect, that, it just feels normal to us. It doesn't feel like we're walking around hopeless. How many people do you know who walk around in despair, walk around without hope because they're separated from Christ, alienated from his people, and cut off from God? That may be their true reality, that they really are cut off in all those dimensions. But is it their existential reality? Do they really feel that way? Or do they just go through life assuming they're pretty much okay? That they're pretty decent people, probably in the upper quartile of human behavior. I'd argue most people feel like they're pretty decent. But I'd also argue that they feel that way because they don't think about what it would actually take to live with God and then to live with his people. And because we don't think about what it would actually take, we're unaware of that disconnect, and therefore, we don't really feel the hopelessness of our situation. Let me try to do an end run here to give us a bit more of that feeling this morning, because the more that we feel accurately what we were, the more we will prize what Jesus has done. So let's do an end run. We've talked a little bit about the before picture, being cut off from God and his people. Here's the after picture. Verse 19, so then, after Jesus has done what he did, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer what you were, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. I want you to pause there for a little moment, hang out on fellow citizens with the saints, which, by the way, that's really what you want in the next life, right? You want to hang out with the saints wherever the saints are, as opposed to hanging out with wherever the saints are not. But think about what that would mean to be a fellow citizen with the saints. Not a hanger-oner, not an also-ran, not a second-class citizen, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Someone who has full right to be there with the saints. Someone who belongs with the saints. What would it mean to belong with the saints. What would it mean to live next door to Abraham? Abraham left his friends and his neighbors because he believed that being with God was better than anything he could get on earth. What would it take in order to fit into Abraham's neighborhood? Or what would it mean to work alongside Joseph? Joseph absorbed other people's sins so that 
he could then take care of them and provide for the very people who had sinned against him. What would it take to be a fellow worker with Joseph? What would it take to be able to go grab coffee with Moses? Moses sees God once, can't get enough of him, wants more and more of him, regardless of what it costs. What would it take to grab coffee with Moses? To be friends with Ruth, sacrifice her own happiness and her future for the sake of not abandoning her mother-in-law to herself. Do you have the kind of generosity that her later husband Boaz has, who uses all that he has in order to bless and benefit others? Do you have the fearlessness of Joshua, the boldness of David, fellow citizens with them so that you're one of them. What would you have to do to belong to that group, to fit in? What kind of life do you have to live? What would earn you a place at their table? How much would you have to give away to people who need help, including those that you don't think deserve help? How nice would you have to be to other people? especially people that you don't like? How devoted to God would you have to be? What on earth would that actually look like? What would it take to be a fellow citizen with the saints to be there because you belong there? And if you start to think about that, meditate on that for a few moments, maybe you start to feel some of that, hmm, maybe I don't have a whole lot of hope. It's really easy to realize that you're a pretty decent person when you look down one side of the, the line, right? Down this other side of the, one side of the continuum that, of people who are worse than you are. And you think, okay, based on what I see around me, the ugliness, I'm a pretty decent person. But when you switch and you look at the other end, the end where the saints are, start to think, hmm, I, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> start to feel a little anxious, a little nervous. Have I done enough lately? to earn a spot with them? Have I been good enough? What about that non-saint thing that I just did? Does that eliminate me, cut me out of the running? Anxiety makes sense when you start to understand how good saints are or what is meant by saint. But if you think about it, you realize anxiety is actually not a saint character. (laughs) So if I'm anxious and worried and questioning whether I belong or not, guess what? By definition, that means I don't. Or maybe you go in a different direction. You look at them, you look at the things, and you think, okay, you know what? Actually, I think I have. I'm a pretty decent person, all things considered. I think I do fit in. What happens if you go down that road? You all know this because you've done this before. When you're doing really well and someone isn't, your roommate at school or student in your class, your spouse, your children. When someone else is struggling and you're not at that moment, don't you tend to be a little impatient with them? To feel like, come on, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? Let's, let's go here. I'm doing okay. You, you could be doing okay as well. And you start to, you know, I'll give you a little bit of space and you think, okay, everybody needs a little bit of room to work things out. But then when they don't seem to be working things out, don't you start to feel like, what, come on, let's go. Why, why aren't you doing better? Why aren't you trying at least? Why, why aren't you <clears throat> like me? And in that moment, what are you doing? You're drawing lines again, aren't you? You're saying on this side of the line are the good people, people like me, people who try. And on that side are the not good people people like you who don't try. Once you start looking for how we separate and divide, you see it everywhere. And you realize, yeah, it really does come from inside here. We create what verse 14 calls a wall of hostility, a line that divides people, that separates the worthy people from the unworthy people. It's what the Jewish people were doing in verse 14. Those who were circumcised were looking at the Gentiles, and they called them uncircumcised. We're not in that social world. That's actually a pretty negative insult. That's a slur. And what they're saying is, you're not good enough for us. You're not like us, and so you stay over there. You stay on your side of the line. Don't cross over here because we don't want anything to do with you. 
Now, it's not in this passage, but to be fair, Gentiles do the same thing. You saw that in the psalm from the call to worship this morning. Gentiles would look over at Jews and say, you guys are actually godless. You don't have an idol to worship. Where is your God? And to the Gentile mind, the Jews didn't have a God. They were godless. Gentiles, on the other hand, thought that we're pretty godly. Why? We, we have lots of gods. And so both Jews and Gentiles used their religion, circumcision, idols, things that are merely physical, things that, as verse 11 says, are done with hands, cutting your body, making idols. They used these physical things to draw a line between themselves and others, to argue that they were good on this side and those on that side were bad. It's hostility there, hostility on both sides. Guess what? If you're hostile toward others, drawing lines, you're not hanging out with the saints. You've disqualified yourself again. If you have any interest in being with God and his people, relying on yourself, on what you can do, on your own religion, what, if you rely on yourself to get there, you end up either anxious or hostile, which in both cases will leave you without hope. That's point one. It's what we were. What do we do then? You're not good enough. No one around you is good enough. Everyone keeps drawing these lines, even though we know that drawing lines is bad. If it's left up to us to connect with God or even with other people, we are without hope. That's when, thankfully, point two, Jesus steps in. He takes the whole mess out of our hands. And notice that he doesn't do it for just one group or the other, but his solution cuts across these various boundary lines. If you're paying attention in the passage, the language changes. Verses 11 to 13, it's all addressed to you, you Gentiles, you. The language changes when we get to the solution. It goes to us and our and we. It's inclusive language, language that realizes that hopelessness is not just a Gentile problem. Hopelessness is a human problem because line-making Separating, dividing, hostility, that's a human problem. Listen again, starting in verse 14. For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus takes care of the problem of separation between people, of division, alienation from God, alienation from others, by doing what? By making us one. By forging a unity among us that was not there before. One where we are all on the same side of the line. Even though it's clear that we're still from different backgrounds. And so the first part of this, he can call out the Gentiles and he can say, I'm talking to you Gentiles. In other words, you're still distinct. Gentiles do not become Jews. Jews don't lose their Jewishness. But Jesus joins us together in a unity that was not there previously. We all used to have the same problem. We valued our group, our own group. We looked down on others who were not part of our group, drew lines, lines of separation. And what did Jesus do? He took away from us the basis of our line drawing. He took away the basis of anyone saying, I am better than you. And so I belong in ways that you don't. Took that away. Nobody can say anymore, I'm better than you. And at the same time, he took away the basis for someone saying, I'm not as good as you. He takes away the basis for superiority. He takes away the basis for inferiority. Because he made each of our goodness based on the same thing. And it's nothing that we had anything to do with. Jesus did something, verse 14, in his flesh, in his physical body. Verse 16 refers to this as something that he did on the cross. So what is it that he did in his body on the cross to put all of us on the same side of the line? How did he get rid of the dividing wall of hostility? 
Verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Commandments, this is what you shall do, this is what you shall not do. Commandments that tell you whether you're on this side of the line or that side of the line. Are you a good person who does what God says or a bad person who does not do what God says? And Jesus comes along and eliminates that line. How is that? He fulfills the penalty for every time that you and I have broken those commands because, frankly, we're all on the other side of the line there. He pays for the penalty for every time we've crossed that line, and on the cross he gives us his perfect record, which means what we now belong, all of us, on this side of the line. In other words, there is no more line. There's no more line, there's no more cause for hostility within Jesus' kingdom. Nobody in the kingdom of God can draw a line between any of God's people. Nobody can do that because Jesus got rid of the line. And he did that for a purpose. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One new man, that does not mean he created an individual person. We're talking about two groups. Probably be better, as the other translations put it, to say he created one new humanity, one new race, one new race that has a different source. It's not a natural source, like we were all born with. It's a supernatural source. We're all connected to him. He is the source now of this new humanity. And so at the same moment that Jesus takes care of all of the hostility in his family, our hostility that we experience from God because we've broken his law, our hostility that we experience between each other because we draw lines. Really important passage. Let me see if I can break it down very simply because the logic is simple. If we all had the same problem that every other Christian had, alienated from God from each other, that means what we all shared a common natural humanity. We were all on the same side of the line, one that has nothing to do with the saints. But if that same problem was solved the same way through what Jesus did on the cross, we now share a new connection with him. Actually, the saints have to share that same connection because they're not perfect either. And we share now a new humanity a new common humanity. And so the basis for any hostility among people in God's church is gone. That's point two. What does that do for us, point three? Here's what we've become, very quickly. We've already seen that we are fellow citizens with the saints. We now have, every one of us in Christ, we have the right, we have the privilege, we have the protection of belonging to the kingdom of God. We're citizens, fellow citizens with the saints, but we're more than that. It's, that's big and broad. Here's a little more intimate. We are members, verse 19, of the household of God. We're now family. All of us have one father. That's why we call each other brother and sister. That's not just a cool term of endearment. That's a reminder of who each of us are, that we are now part of not just a great big kingdom, but we are part of the same family. We're close. Because of what Jesus has done, we are now intimately related with each other, to each other. We're citizens, we're family members, even more intimate. Verse 21, we're being joined together trying to give us language that helps us understand spiritually what Jesus has done. We're joined together, and so we have a building metaphor here to talk about that there, the, there is a spiritual connection between us, something that you can't see, not something that's weird, but there is something between us that grows out of our connection with Christ, that because we're connected to him, we are now interconnected with each other. And so verse 21, in whom, meaning in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying God's looking for a home. He wants a home in his universe, a place where he dwells. And it's not enough for him that he dwells in each of us individually. That is true. But it's more than that. It's that we are being joined together so that he dwells in us as a community in ways that we cannot have him dwell in us when we're sitting in our living room by ourselves having our devotional time. We experience something of Christ differently in community than we ever can individually. That's why we don't go to temple anymore in Jerusalem. It's because we are the temple. That doesn't mean we don't go anywhere. (laughs) It means we go to places where we gather together to experience our God. We are citizens, we're family, we're temple. That's what the church, the people of God, this new humanity is. That's all true, and yet there's no way that I can say that without immediately having all of us think about how far short the modern American church is. It's obvious to anybody looking in from the outside that we are horribly divided, that we are still struggling with diversity. It's long been said that in the U.S. the most segregated hour of the week is on Sunday morning during our worship services. We are segregated ethnically. We are segregated by class. We don't mix well in America. But we're also segregated by many other things as well. We are busy in the church, capital C Church, at this moment, drawing lines between people, hostile lines. Many of those lines at this moment are political. And so we draw lines around issues like critical race theory, reparations, social justice, important issues. But we misuse those issues by using them as dividing lines to determine who are the saints, the good people, the ones who think the right way, and who are the non-saints, the bad people who don't think the right way. We draw them around important issues. Brothers and sisters, we draw them around silly issues. We draw them with the same energy, like whether or not a church has the correct mask policy, whether people are separated at the appropriate distance or whether they ought to be closer together. Brothers and sisters, and let me use those words with all of the content that I have just tried to unpack over the last bit, fellow citizens of the saints, fellow family members. Jesus did not die so that you would go to war with your fellow family members. Are these issues important? Of course they are. Should you be passionate about them? Study them, discuss them, be challenged by them? Absolutely. And yet, let me qualify that. Passionate but not in a way that opens and creates new hostilities. Passion in a way that does not separate people in the church into saints and non-saints. Jesus did not join us together at great personal loss to himself so that we would spend our lives on earth ripping each other apart. And yet, to our shame, that is what the church is doing. Go out on social media. You already have done this. And look at how people talk about brothers and sisters. Look at the condescension, the rudeness, the lack of charity, the judgmentalism. Look at the way that people talk about brothers and sisters for whom Christ died in a way that you would not talk to your neighbor, even if you didn't like them. We're going to live for eternity. (laughs) with each other, as a spiritual house connected with each other. And yet we talk to each other like we're enemies. Or look at how we set tests for each other. Or how we feel tested by each other. How we can't have a Twitter or Facebook page without asking, am I posting the right things to my account? Am I going to be in trouble if I say what I really think? 
Am I going to get in trouble if I don't say things that other people think I should be saying? Should I maybe say those things so I don't get in trouble? Who is it that we think we're going to be in trouble with? It's other Christians. Anybody resonate here? I know some of you do. You don't have to raise your hands. We've talked about this. I know I feel these things. What is all that? It's another wall of hostility. It's drawing lines again. Lines where the good people are over here and the bad people are over there. It's a failure, but it's not a failure of the world. It's a failure of the church to actually live out our citizenship, our familiness, our templeness with each other. It's a failure to take the gospel seriously. It's the belief that the gospel is not strong enough and therefore we need something else to deal with the radical hatred among us. The solution is to go back to the gospel and to realize that it has something to say about how we live and how we deal with hatred. That the gospel is not about getting into heaven, it's about living on earth as well. And that we have to figure out how does it apply to issues of hatred. And we need to think about this personally. We need to stop waiting for the church to do something about it. We need to decide, no, (laughs) I'm part of the church. I am to be the church. I'm to be a member of the church that Jesus made each one of us to be. What does this mean? How do you do that? You insist then on looking at yourself and looking at every other follower of Christ through the lens of your former alienation and your present reconciliation. And so you learn to ask yourself questions like, do I regularly remember how great my need was? Am I humbled to have the privilege that I now do? Do I celebrate the one who actually gave that to me? Is having him my greatest joy, given that he solved my greatest problem? Do I consider every other Christian to have the exact same privilege and the exact same status that I now get to enjoy? You run all of your relationships in the church, both the easy ones and the hard ones. You run them all through the grid of the gospel of reconciliation. How will you know if you're doing that, that you've actually been touched by this gospel? You'll start to see that you engage people differently, that you'll refuse to have those lines in your own heart and your own mind, in the words that come out of your mouth. Let me close with one very short, small story. This is going to seem small, given the scale of the massive social debates we're having in this country. But maybe let's just be honest with each other for a moment. Sometimes those debates can be a distraction to living the Christian life. Or uh, they can be for me. They're a way of feeling like I'm doing something. I'm contributing. I'm I'm engaged in this debate. I'm discussing the, the issues of moment. But debating ideas, regardless of how important those ideas are, is not the litmus test of whether I'm becoming more like Christ. If you want to know that the gospel is really impacting me, that's not just another idea that I debate. You have to look at how I treat the people who are actually in front of me. Not how I treat ideas about people, not how I treat people in the abstract, but how I treat real flesh and blood people that I bump up against. Like a woman that I knew who made one of my jobs really miserable. She did not like where the leaders of that organization were taking that organization, and she especially didn't like the role that they asked me to have, and so she ended up undermining a lot of what I did. I don't know that she intended this, but she did that, did a lot of things behind my back, things that eventually helped move me out of there. Incredible thorn in my side for a number of years, someone who had been a dedicated follower of Christ for decades, a sister. And I remember a time when one of my friends came up to me after I had left, and they invited me to complain about her. And and you, you know how that works. When someone forces your hand and there's nothing that you can do to change the mess that they're making, you can at least do what? You you can complain about them. 
you can have the, the delicate joy of running down another human being. I've done that plenty of times in my life. This guy came and invited me to do that again. And I did something unusual at that time. I talked about this person through the lens of what we've just been talking about this morning. I said to my friend, you know, one day we're all going to be in heaven, you, me, and her, and we're all going to be absolutely thrilled to be there. And we're going to be thrilled that each other is there. And we're going to be amazed at the glory that is just coming out of each one of us, and we're going to be a little embarrassed, abashed, that we actually got to be there ourselves. That's going to be true of you, it'll be true of me, and it'll be true of her. Now what is that? It's small. I get that. But it's the gospel informing how I live. It's knowing deep down that I don't deserve to have what I have. I don't deserve to be a fellow citizen with the saints. I don't deserve to be your brother. I don't deserve to be connected with you. I don't deserve to have God living inside of me. I don't deserve to be with this sister that I will be with for eternity. But Jesus loves me anyway. And not just me, but every single one of his people. If you and I will live that out, then renewal will be a beautiful community and we will demonstrate that the power of God does change people and it erases the dividing line of hostility and it will be a beacon to the larger world that invites people to something that they don't have the ability to overcome themselves. Lord Jesus, you have a beautiful vision and more than that, you have the power to bring it into being. Lord, this is what is going to happen, and I am deeply grateful to be part of it. I'm deeply grateful for my brothers and sisters that you've also called to be part of it. Lord, let us see you more than we see anything else, and let us see your love for others more than we see the things that irritate us. Lord, do that in a way that allows us then to rejoice in you and rejoice with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.